0: hello and welcome to living while feminist living while feminist is a weekly podcast talking with feminists about the ups and downs ins and outs and the emotional roller coaster ride of living a feminist life i'm your host feminist writer researcher and author jen thorpe everyone it's jen i can't believe it's season three already another season full of fantastic advice from brilliant feminists i hope you enjoy it i hope you are having a good 2021 so far and thank you so much for listening please do give us a rate and a review if you can we'd really appreciate it thank you so much bye today on the podcast i'll be talking with Nobantu shabangu Nobantu is a gender non-conforming South African writer of plays, poems, short stories and essays. They started writing when they were 9 years old and at 18 they won a national essay competition on the cruelty of farm animals. This was the first of many prizes including Leopard's Leap's 2018 Message on a Bottle writing competition and the January 2019 Igby Essay Prize on Kalahari Review. Between 2012 and 2014, they were part of the British Council's Playwright Residency in conjunction with the Royal Court Theatre in London, where their play, Candyland, was developed. In 2015, a reading of their play was held at the Market Theatre. Nobuntu is a contributor to Bright Rock's Change Exchange webpage, where they write about life-changing moments. In 2016, they were a facilitator for the Zwakala Festival, a market theatre initiative to develop community theatre. An ardent feminist, they have published essays in My First Time and Living While Feminist. Nubandu has a BA in Communication Science and Public Administration and they're currently studying a postgraduate degree in Drama Therapy at the University of the Vidvatas Nabantu's piece in Living While Feminist is called A Decade of Feminism, and it explores their journey to a new form of feminist identity, as well as a series of haircuts over the years. At the end of the piece, Nabantu says, My hair is growing, and I do not comb it. I feel the thin areas, the thick areas, the short areas, and the few straight hairs that poke out of the forest of tight curls. This is what feminism is like a vast area fertile for growth, with strong parts and waning parts all growing. In the forest of feminism, identities are formed, nations are built, young women are fierce warriors, continents are bridged, and age is worn proudly like the rings of a tree. So today I'll be talking with Nobantu about that peace and the infinite potential in all of us for feminist growth. Welcome, Ah,
1: Thank
0: you, Jen. Thank you. Mm, It's so nice to be talking to you because I've been following your writing journey for what is almost a decade now and I'm so excited that we got to touch base for Living While Feminist. So let's talk about that piece. It begins with a haircut but it reflects on some of the pressures that you face during your lifetime around your hair, the way that you dress and present yourself and how this pressure came from all arenas, whether it was the beauty industry or your family or your home or your hairdresser or your friends. And you say, once I lost the illusions of beauty created by popular media, I made peace with my hair. So for you, it seems like a haircut is an assertion of power and of reclaiming or making clear your gender identity. Can you tell us a bit more about why you chose to write about hair for the collection?
1: Hair is really interesting. It's a marker of time. It's a marker of identity as well, um, depending on your culture. You know, if if you have long hair, you're considered a girl. If you have shorter, hair, you're considered a, a boy. And it marks also transitions. You know, boys cut their hair, uh, whatever transitions they're going through, like initiations. If you're being initiated culturally for other things like a calling or else, something else, your hair is extended. It's, I mean, it's allowed to grow and it's tended to. So hair is very int- intricate and, and, int- and intimate part of life you know so that's why i decided to write about it to, to reflect the changes that have taken place uh in my life as a feminist uh because i am non-gender conforming and i am on the trans spectrum and it it, it, it it that involves a lot of transitioning physically and also hormonally but i am not on that side yet and so i i had the hair for that and the policing of hair has also been in like a historic thing globally in South Africa as well, black hair, you know, um, black hair. If it's an afro, if it's should be relaxed, it should be natural, and it all somehow intertwines with the feminist movement. You know, it it really just it, it they the they're the boundaries are uh, they permeate, you know, they relate. So I I thought hair was really interesting for that. Um, considering also when I the first hair cut that was t- a decade ago was the first time that I also just realized. I'm, I'm proud of being a feminist and I am queer, you know, gay and all of that. So, yeah, that's that's why.
0: You say in your piece, this is the peril of being a woman. Your actions must always be justified. They must make sense to others. Can you explain what you meant by this and whether it's changed since you've come out as gender nonconforming, and what impact your haircut has or the, the perception of your haircut has on your ability to live freely?
1: Women always have had to explain themselves in this world. they've always had to explain why they, they don't want kids explain everything because for the longest time women were possession of of men or in society they belonged to someone else um and that be that came from a place of resourcefulness and just men being physically stronger. We all know about evolution. But as we have developed, as, as we have evolved further, and as we have become, you know, it's a 20, it's 2020 now, you still have to explain why your hair is short or why it's shaved on the side, you know? So it's, it, that's what I mean by, by the, the it, it, there's, it's still that thorn in the side of being a gendered female as well, because we don't choose it, but gendered this way and having to explain all your actions, including even going beyond hair, like sexual partners. Um, as an ungender conforming person, clothing styles so or markers of identity, you have to you have to explain yourself even in that. So in some way, your power of aut- autonomy is questioned, and and that's what I mean by that's the perils of being a woman. Uh, why don't you beautify yourself today? Why are you beautifying yourself today? Why do you look like a slave queen? Why do you today? You know, and all that stuff. So it is it is a somber thing for me. It is something to think about.
0: If you are performing in a particular way, then there is this sort of outside policing of difference. So, if you decide that, like you said that today you want to dress up like a slay queen and tomorrow you just want to wear overalls, you know, then there's it shouldn't really affect anyone else, right? It's about you and what you want to wear. But so often we policed for the ways that we dress, people ask questions. And, you know, I, I interviewed someone um, the other day and they were just saying, you know, sometimes it's just easier to conform than to have to deal with the conversation about why you're not. I don't know if you feel the same way.
1: It's so much easier to conform. And for the longest time, I conformed. You know, I conformed. So, again, this is why it's a decade of feminism, because it's when I decided it's the end of conforming. Um, and, and, and and even in that decision, it was questioned. Uh, I had to, as you, if you read the essay, I, I, I had to go to several salons all the female ones, all the woman ones, wouldn't touch my hair. They wouldn't cut it, which is shocking because I'm the paying customer. And the male one, they made me, sh- they made sure that I waited and waited almost the whole day, uh, which is weird because the haircut is quite short. But they just wanted me to be sure that I want to cut my hair. And I guess also I was, I was quite young. I was 18, so they I, and I did look very young. They just wanted to make sure. Um, so yeah, it's. Um, Conforming is a big big issue. It's the, it's the reason why if, it's the reason why for me I feel like some women in, in politics are also not as effective. It's because of conforming. Um, it's also a safety issue. If I look more feminine, it's it, it, well, it's quite debatable. but if I look more feminine, I look less threatening right If I have long hair, if I smile, if I wear clothing that's like loose uh, not too provocative. I'm less threatening and I'm more ex-
0: accepted into
1: society. And this is in 2020.
0: So you've been someone who's for a long time said that you're a feminist and you talk in your piece about your introduction to feminism at university and how you were sort of an earlier doctor of the label, but that there was still some reluctance from your friends. What do you think it was that made you more comfortable with calling yourself a feminist?
1: Just looking at, at the freedom that I found, through feminism in, in university, through po- protests, through solidarity with other women, there was a, there were que- there were queer women, there were white women, there were black women, there were Indian women, um, Me- Middle Eastern women in these movements. So, just meeting at that space where just just by being there you were accepted, and then the agenda was what can we do for women, what can we make, what can we do for women and, and to advance them. And this for me at 18 years old was quite radical. And it's still quite radical even now for women to meet and their agenda is solely about them and their needs and their wants. Um, so that's what made me really just uh, adopt and, you know, craft myself in that family.
0: <laughs> well, you contrast that experience of yourselves and your friends at university. Um, that decade ago, with your perception that now feminists are so much younger and less afraid and that the rise of social media and the need to be visible has influenced the shift. And in your essay you say, when asked if they are feminists, these young women agree without hesitation. They're not looking for likes or followers. They happen to be born in a time when technology affords them the power of social media for disseminating information. So I like the way that you speak about feminism as a sort of conversation, whether it's with feminists in the contemporary times or whether it's past and present versions of yourself and and also I think it's so important that you speak about social media and being inspired by younger feminists um, and what I was very interested in and we've talked a little bit about this before is that even you had this feeling that even though you didn't always agree with their, the way their feminism was manifesting, that your duty as an older feminist, and you're not even very old, but your duty as a more experienced feminist, for, maybe, is to move with the waves um, in order to facilitate solidarity. So, you know, it's been like almost a year since you sent the piece in to me and you've had more time to think about it. And I'm wondering whether you still feel like it's your job as an older feminist to just wi- ride the wave or whether you think there's a little bit more room for intergenerational learning?
1: Yeah, I, I, I still hold that space. Um, I still hold that space. And I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a uh, I don't know, I don't like using this word, but I'm going to use it. It's an issue of, of being woman and thinking that as we age, we should be in, invisible and or we should take the sidelines. So um I, I have a sister who's 14 years younger than me and I've, I've learned that um, holding space doesn't mean silencing yourself as well it means really entering into dialogue with them as much as a lot of the lingo right now, I do not understand a lot of the lingo that is, is that is uh, that is spoken right now but I understand that there's a, there's a sense of freedom and a sense of autonomy and a sense of knowing about the about that. About themselves, if if you if you speak to a sixteen year old and eighteen year old, fifteen year old, twenty year old, they really do know themselves. You know, given of course um, other factors like psychological de- developments. But I speak, I'm speaking on the feminist uh, discourse. So I, I'm still on that wave <laughs> and just holding space as 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 myself. I I, I travel between these spaces. Um, in the book, I was you know I was in I was in a session with other with other women who are older than me who are like sisters and aunts to me or, you know, those elders for me and just listening to them, entering into dialogue and and having a common understanding is what matters in the, in the feminist um, ideal, you know?
0: And what what would you say is the most interesting or stimulating thing that you've learned from younger feminists in the last few years?
1: I've learned, uh, what's it called? Hashtag feminist joy. And that means many things. But mostly I've learned, um, sexual liberation and the sh- like, there is no shame, right? And there's, there's also, there, there, there is a knowingness in why they're doing it. Um, but I also think that's where we come in, also just guiding them because, uh, sometimes, they, you know, they don't know, but there's this, the sexual liberation movement of, of younger, of younger feminists is amazing. The they brought in the whole body positivity trend, especially on social media. Where I grew up with uh, Paris Hilton in media and Nicole Richie and all the skinny, skinny people, and I really tried to be like extremely skinny. And I that was my uh, that that was the image of attraction I had in my in my head, and it it has been totally dismantled by younger feminists who have. Um, promulgated the body positive um, trend and also just the sexual liberation and allowance of sexual exploration in a safe
0: way, you know, and, and, and no shame at all in there and just, you know, reclaiming that joy. Such an important part of feminism, right, is the ability to explore sexual pleasure as a human right. You know, we live in quite a violent and scary world a lot of the time. But the other side of it is joy and spending moments with your friends or with people who inspire you and also getting to know your own body and exploring what makes you feel good. Is, is hugely valuable as an act of resistance to the patriarchy, which says you should just be subservient and docile and, you know, suffer quite a lot of the time. So now on the other end of things, in, in your piece, you talk about the, the talk that you attended and listened to these feminist elders. What would you say then is something that, that those type of sessions with the elders give to you? What has been the learning there?
1: I'm going to sound like such a traditional uh, Zulu girl, but I've learned through that. Of respect, I've learned uh, to to really respect them because when you live in your world with your own struggles, especially as a as a as a queer body and a non gender conforming person, you really believe that your struggle is your own and that no one else knows it or no one else you know as much as that can be true. But when I do attend these sessions, especially when they are cross cultural and cross continental. I really understand that feminism is 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 a global language um that does not need translating wherever it is you know and i and I respect the proponents of it the the people that that move it forward wherever they are so i've gained respect from them to see oh they've made so many strides and they've walked this far and there's understanding there's you know there's solidarity as well and there's so much power there's so much power in in, in women fighting in the 50s in the 70s in 1990s until now and meeting them and hearing those experiences and sharing that experience it it, it really humbles me
0: and it, it it does humble me and i've i've, I've learned that from them just um, I do think it's really valuable to engage with older writing and people, even if you disagree, or maybe especially when you disagree. So I really liked what you said in the CNA launch about that learning and that space for feminist growth. Can you tell me about feminist growth and what it means for you in your life?
1: Yeah, feminist feminist growth is exactly what you've just said about true colored culture. It It really shows how... Women are treated the same all over the world and conditioned to to be pitted against each other. So much so that it influences our social media interactions. I've never met you, let's say for example, but I will drag the hell out of you uh for no other reason other than that I think you're wrong. Um and as you've said, there's 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 no the need to understand is diminished. So I think feminist growth has has is it's that becoming that understanding, that maturity of of understanding that some people are not, it's like a relay. Some people are not where you are. And maybe you can backstep a bit and really just get down to their level and make them understand, not make them understand, but dialogue with them. Should they not move on with you, you can still carry on on your relay because you know where, where your marker, you started and you know where you're going. But because of solidarity and the feminist movement being about, woman inequality. My my own maturity is really just getting taking the time out to 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 speak to people. That's that's where I am with my feminist growth and, and just exploring all the facets of it, all the dimensions. There are all these different threads. And if, if it's nonviolent, it it's okay. And if it's allowing of, of diverse voices, then it is okay. Um, if it's not taking us back <laughs> and we can that, like, What is taking us back?
0: Well, let's discuss it, seeing as you brought it up. I mean, I'm very interested. Are there any things that you see in sort of contemporary feminism that you think are taking us back? I'll go first so you can have a second to think about it. So I was very interested to see um, the celebration recently of other music from Cardi B called WAP, W-A-P, Wet Ass Pussy. And it was really interesting to me to follow people saying, you know, this is amazing. People shouldn't get upset about it because it's just women talking about their bodies the way men have done for ages. And my thought was, yes, exactly. Why is that liberation? Why is, I don't know what the right word is, but why is it okay for women to objectify women suddenly? And how is that seen as feminism? And, you know, I've really, I've still been thinking about, that's a performance it looks like a performance to the male gaze the very fact that people are defending it because they're saying you know it's women talking about themselves the way men always have to me is a really big warning sign Um, but I'm obviously terrified to say anything like that on social media because I don't really feel like getting involved and there's obviously all sorts of different dimensions that come into my critique of two black women's music videos that, you know, that I think could overshadow the point that I'm making is that it's very harmful. And so for you, is there anything that you've seen lately that you think "Mm, this might actually be a backlash or something that's taking us back from feminist ideals? Wow, Jen.
1: uh, It's quite a tenuous uh, subject matter. And I'm with you there about the male gaze and where is the power with with that music video? I'll be honest, I haven't watched the music video, but I've seen clips of it on on Twitter, um, and it it really is a performance. And we can argue that it does it can take us a few a few steps back in that the black body is hypersexualized, very hypersexualized in those clips that I've seen. And it it, it it comes from a a, a back a backing of, well, if men can do this, why don't, why can't women? Well, if men are killing us for for simply because they can, why don't we kill them? You know It can be as simple as that. I know that's very, very simplistic, but it, it, it's, it's as simple as that to say, okay, where's the foundations of this?" Also it, it, within the context of the music industry, women, to be honest, are, are, are still objectified a lot, a lot. And the fact that they had to, they had to have two women and it just had to, it, it was very hypersexualized. Uh, for me, where women are, uh, so I guess that's me, my love for, for hip hop as well. And I'm also dealing with that myself because I, 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 I do listen to a lot more male rappers and they, they do, they do rap about their penises and their big cars and, and all of these things, you know. Um, and so it's also my own little conflicts that I have to deal with.
0: But they make it so hard because it sounds good as well, right? Like it's got a catchy beat. You can't stop singing it even while you're thinking, oh, this is terrible. Why am I singing this? Like, yeah, the bass is so good. Like, when the bass is
1: it's like, what? And it's so colorful and all of that, you know. But for me, again, I'll just be back on the hypersexualization of women. As much as I am for sexual liberation, we have to think of the of the of the gaze that the, the, the camera is, is looking at and you don't normally look up a woman's bum while she's kneeling on all four and doing all those things. So it's it's very detailed and very complex. And I think we should be allowed to have these conversations and say, but is it okay, you know? I think what can take us back I speak as a non gender conforming person and who's also I think mostly lesbian, <laughs> the attack on femmes, you know, so Jen is just too feminine and she wears dresses and she's, she's got a, a, a husband. So how can she be a feminist? And, you know, so, <laughs> nitpicking things that don't need to be nitpicked. I think that takes us back.
0: I mean, Roxanne Gay speaks about this in, in a book called bad feminist, which is exactly what we've talked about today is around, you know, loving problematic hip hop <laughs> and, yeah. you know, being fine with people's flawed existences or finding them attractive or appealing, even though they are problematic. So I suppose then my follow-up question to our problematic likes then would be how do we hold ourselves accountable and when is it time to really reckon with those things that we know are problematic and that we should probably give up.
1: I think you evaluate, you know, so you evaluate if 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 you evaluate how your actions are affecting the movement, or affecting others, um, and if it really speaks back to your philosophy, as as in your identity within feminism, that self-accountability is about evaluation and speaking. I'm speaking with you now, Jen, and we're very honest about our own conflicts. So that that, that is an accountability system. Yeah, we are literally doing a like commission of inquiry for feminists.
0: Well, like the idea is that you are on a journey, right? Like we're not, none of us is perfect. We are definitely going to have, I mean, if you think about it, patriarchy is a type of pollution and all of us have breathed that in. And so if we all been breathing in the pollution, there's times when we're going to be more able to breathe clearly and see that it's wrong. And other times where the pollution is really going to have affected the way that we think. Um, And that's why I think it is so important that this cancel culture, call out culture is limited because and if it comes at you as an attack, you're not going to listen. you immediately close off from a conversation because you just think this person doesn't understand me. you just straight up shut people down. There is no more conversation, there is no more learning from either side yeah it, it's it's it's
1: very complicated
0: because women are naturally held
1: to a higher standard, and we are, we are not allowed to be contradictory beings um, and so it's it's it's, it's, it's really um Complex as you've said, so if if we if we do put pin, put down those pinpoints to say, okay, I find this problematic with this person or I find this you know it doesn't speak to the feminist ideals or to just queer ide- you know queer ideals whichever whichever spaces you permeate you exist in um so that's much just my view
0: so I've also been having a look at some of your other writing and I went to your blog, which is called The Chronicles of a Thirsty Diet. And you post there fiction and nonfiction. So I had a look at your last post, which was from May 2020, where you were exploring some of your frustration with the debates around the lockdown and what COVID has revealed or maybe just highlighted about the inequality in our society. And at the end of that piece, you say the lockdown will be lifted eventually and nothing will be normal again, but the class division will remain. So we're recording this interview in September 2020, which is a few months after your post. And I was interested to find out whether your feelings have changed at all and what you think we should do to address some of the sticky structural challenges that lie ahead.
1: The class, divide, the class divides will remain. My feelings are still the same. My feelings are, are, are still the same. It, it's very, We live in very different... There's a, there's a huge contrast in South African... In south africa's landscape there's a huge contrast there um and i think how we can get out of this sticky situation is it's gonna sound kumbaya but we literally just hold each other and you help where you can help you give where you can give um and that's and that's that's the only way because we've seen how our government has continued to pillage funds um even women in government are are not as effective and we see how even with covid-19 it, it has affected women mostly nurses have died um, women are the breadwinners and and they've lost jobs um, a lot yeah so that's that's the only way we, we you do what you can you do what you can we amble we amble along with each other
0: Just a note that today's episode deals with some difficult topics, so please do take care of yourselves while you're listening. I loved, I mean, that sounds so much like the quote at the end of your piece, which I read at the start, which was about the forest of feminism and parts that are growing and parts that are waning. It really does show that you're a poet as well as a non-fiction and a fiction writer. So tell me about the role of writing in your life in general and what forms your writing is taking these days Um, and then maybe we can talk a bit about your studies in drama therapy and what that means thank you jane thank you
1: uh writing is my freedom so i i was i was um i've never publicly said this i think or maybe i have on twitter i was sexually assaulted as a child but I never told anyone so i was very i was very quiet for the longest time and books were like my friend and writing was my friend and i i, I experienced a lot of dissociation from the youngest age so i i never saw myself i never i never i never people don't never understood I, if, even if even if there was a picture of me i didn't see myself I had to have my family members around me in the picture to say, Oh, I am in this picture that is me, and that is the effect of trauma that was on me so i I wrote as a way of freedom. I wrote as a way to find myself. I wrote poems about my body, I wrote poems about birds i I wrote my thoughts, and luckily, I had teachers that really just fostered that gift in me because they they saw that i was i was i was special or just quiet, but I had a lot to say in my writing so writing for me is my freedom, which is why even um, when we did that CNA thing, I, a CNA conversation, I did say like, as a feminist, my advice is just write. Just write. We can mute you, we can delete your, not we, I mean, your picture, your your videos can be deleted, all of that, but when you write it is there, it is there, you know, and the beauty of writing is when you re- read it, Jen, it's in your own world, but it is my writing. When I read it, it's in my own world, but it's, you know, there's this, we share these this fantastical space this imaginative space um that's the beauty of writing you know especially um if you i mean any kind of writing actually it takes you there you you, you it's it's like being in that person's head i'm in jen's head right now so and that and that's the beauty of it
0: mm. i'm really sorry that you had that experience um But I'm very grateful that you had supportive teachers who encouraged you to write because I think your writing is very powerful. It's very clear and measured and and it comes across the level of empathy that you have for other people's difficult periods of growth. Um, I'm interested in, in how writing and drama therapy studies sort of link up and how this second degree is so different, or maybe it is and isn't, from your first degree in communication and public administration. So how did you come to be studying drama therapy? I like systems and mechanical systems,
1: and I like things that have explanations. So I, I got a job in, in, in government for like about five years. I was working in, in municipality. And it was a very rigid, systematic way of working. You know, uh, I lo- I liked it. I didn't love it. I liked it, but it it it, it killed my creativity in some form. So that collided with my um, with my degree in BA in communication sciences and public administration. Because communications is also a science. You know, there's up, down, all, all these kind of, of, of messages, interference. You know, all the ways of organisational communication. And then public administration is really just. Um, uh, policies, government, and technical, um, technical things that take place in in, in government and filing system and all and all these yeah things. So I was I was doing that for the for the for the really mechanical part of me, but the creative part of me was really just dying because I've always been a writer. And with communication science, yes, you can do some some writing like journalistic writing or. Whatnot, but that's not what I was doing in my job. I was, I was just, I, I was just a cog in the machine, just doing what I'm supposed to do in my part, filing, doing this, doing that, accountability, all that stuff. So, I think trauma therapy is more of a calling, if I can. It's more of a calling, and uh, when I did start my studies in UCT, I started, I started with psychology, philosophy, and politics. And then some things happened, I had to get out and then I I now, and then I completed my, when I completed my degree, psychology had fallen away. (laughs) Politics had also fallen away. It was very technical subjects in there. Um, So the the inquisitive part of me was also killed and uh, not killed, but it wasn't that much stimulated. So trauma therapy came as a calling to say, actually, um, I think subconsciously it came that I want to tell my story of how. I survived sexual trauma and how that happened through trauma therapy. So I, I met a trauma therapist who, who helped me uh, because I, I had been to talk therapists before and they it, it, it did not work. It, it just did not work. And trauma therapy helps because it uses uh, trauma techniques and, and, and the creative like arts. It's like an arts intervention, like painting, drawing, acting, playing, a lot of playing. And, you know this somehow gets into the subconscious and these rep- repressed parts come out so that like the traumas really did come out uh of, of of multiple sexual traumas not just one so that's how trauma therapy helped me and it is i feel that it is a calling and it's something that i i will be using also as a as a feminist primarily as a feminist and also to help the public sector because i am i do like the public service as well as much as um i've strayed away from it um, I think my own experience of of sexual trauma in my adulthood, and and seeing how when you report a case, it's really difficult. Not only reporting it when you go to the to the doctor, the procedure itself is invasive, and then you, you get to the psychologist, and the psychologist uh, as a gender person, they really judge you. There's there's a judgment that is there to say. Well, it's not spoken right, Jen, but it's like, well, you you sort of deserved it because you look like a man or you, you cut your hair like a man or you were, you were clubbing, looking like a man in a club where there were lots of men. So that's what happens, <laughs> uh, unfortunately. And then so trauma therapy was really that, is, is that space for me to, to learn more about the psych and to be a body that is not gendered.
0: So how did you find out about trauma therapy? Was it something that you had known about when you were studying, or was did you, you stumble upon it? Like, where could someone who doesn't know much about it go to find out more?
1: Uh, I found out through a friend who who explained to me what it was, but I didn't I didn't get it. You know, <laughs> you know, when someone says psychology, you get it. Like, okay, you you know, you go to, to to a session and you talk to someone, and and someone tells you about trauma therapy. Like, no, we just we we, we, talk, we paint we play you know there's dramatic en- enactments there's role play there's psycho trauma psychoanalysis so I was busy on a project uh for child for children's theater I was busy on a project for children's theater and uh, that person came and they were watching the the, the, the children's theater and uh they, were, they started talking about trauma thea- uh, therapy and and symbolism and all that stuff um so. It's at, you can only study it at vets, as far as I'm concerned. So that's where you, you can study trauma therapy, and you do need to study psychology as well. And it's, it's a really interesting course, um, takes a long time to be a trauma therapist, and it's not, it's not like, it's just like any, psych, just like psychology, um, and it's, a, it's quite a small market in South Africa, but it's, it's growing as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, we live in a country where people are dealing with trauma on a daily basis. Um, So I'm really glad that there are more forms that are becoming available to people to seeking out help for whatever they need help with. I mean, I am a very big believer. I've been to talk therapy and I found, you know, I think it really does depend on whether you find the person who's right for you, regardless of whatever type of therapy you're looking for. And so I'm very glad that you didn't let the talk therapy let down put you off you know continuing to work through your stuff I think that's really amazing
1: yeah and and the wonderful thing with uh, trauma therapy is really interactive so you can have like group sessions and it's not it's 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 it's, it's different from trad- traditional talk therapy in that it's not like oh today we're going to talk about rape you know which is what happened with me with my with my psychologist that I, I've received at, at Bahaguanes. Uh, the session was just really there was no sensitivity you know there was no scaffolding you know there was no slow unraveling of the situation at hand we just dove deep into it but again that's just one incident that i had maybe other people have had better ones but i'm just speaking to 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 the differences between the two
0: no i mean i think it's important to share your experience whether it was good or bad because it, you know, it creates a more holistic picture of what people can look out for when they go to therapy, you know, and the idea that you are, especially when you're in a vulnerable position, which is generally when you go to seek help for whatever reason, you know, you think, okay, this person is treating me in this way, this must be the way therapy is, because I'm vulnerable, and they're the knowledge person, and they know everything. But I think what you've shown is that if you're not happy with your therapist, if it's not meeting your needs, then there's other routes to follow and you shouldn't give up just because you have one bad experience. You know, not to diminish your experience at all, but just, you know, there's to the belief that you are right about your own feelings and if you're not happy with who is trying to help you, you have the right to find someone else.
1: Definitely. And and as as, as feminism is like really just growing, I, I just love the online movement of it and how women are being more uh, taking ownership of, of, of their own self-care and mental health care. And it makes me think of An- Angela Davis and how she's really about mindfulness. And some people have critiqued this approach of hers to, to feminism and to decolonialism and, you know, just at the activist space as um, using mindfulness and, 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 and self-care and mental care as a way, as also a tool and a power and a weapon. Of, of, of being an activist, you know, so yeah, it's, it's, it's...
0: So I have three last questions before we end off the podcast today, um, and the first is, do you have a book, or more than one book, that has inspired your feminism?
1: Ah, uh, wow, in, in 2014
0: I, I read a book I have many books, <laughs> I
1: read uh, Bessie Head's A Question of Power so I, I loved that book. And it's one of her under-recognized books. Most people know her for Maru. But A Question of Power is really about, it, it's such a subtle book for me as a queer person. I, just, I, just, I was just reading it like, nah, this was written for queer women, you know? So Bessie Head hits the nail there about queer, not queer women, but different women living in in, in a society where their existence and identities are sort of, questioned, you know, and they, they're trying to just make a living, be it through farming and, and through relations with others. It's a beautiful book, what Bessie Hatch writes beautifully. And uh, Nab- Nabuk mafouz I think I'm saying it, I'm, I hope I'm saying he's an Egypt- Egyptian writer, and he wrote this trilogy. Uh, one of the books is called The Palace of Desire, Palace Walk, Palace of Desire, oh, I can't remember it now. But I just like how he writes about women in there. And there's this one woman, you could say she's a courtesan and she entertains men at night. And then there's another woman who's a devoted wife. So I just loved the contrast of, of those two. And and that really just grew my feminist my my, my imagination and how to exist as a person that gendered female. Like there is a choice. There is a choice and you can thrive. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and um, it's interesting that you chose two fiction books there, because I think, you know, when people are starting out to thinking, okay, I want to know more about feminism, they often go to the nonfiction. And obviously, as a person who's edited into collections, I'm very happy that they go to do that, because it means people buy those books and money goes to Red Crisis. But I think fiction is a way of telling us different stories about different people and characters and helps us to empathize a lot better with people and to think okay that could be me and to put ourselves in people's shoes so that's very cool and it is called the palace of desire quickly had a check now whilst you were talking Mm. so the the second to last question that i have is do you have a quote that inspires you or that you live by
1: no i used
0: to i used to collect
1: quotes jen (laughs) (laughs) so can i just quickly look at this book it's my own book Let me see what quotes I have in here. I only have here, genius is at first the ability to receive discipline, but I think I've moved away from that. (laughs) And that was by George Eliot, if anyone is interested. Genius is at first the ability to receive discipline, you know.
0: And then my final question for you for today is, what advice do you have for other feminists on their journeys?
1: Empathy, have empathy for others. Um, and we, we, we're in it together and do not be afraid, never be afraid. Always, always give your own voice, whichever way it is, if it's through images, if it's through words, uh, if it's through charity, we each have our own callings within this space. Um, so do what you can. Um, you, and you are not alone and you are not crazy and i say all these things because you come to this realization if you are young when you come to to the realization that you are a feminist and you really want to own the the label you know cuz some people don't want to and that that's your choice as well you really want to own that label do not be afraid own it and write and speak and do not be afraid also to be to to be wrong we will hold you we hold each other you know um yeah so that's 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 my my advice
0: i think that's great advice so thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today and for your writing and for the energy that you bring to the space of empathy and kindness and growth i really appreciate it and i'm sure there's many other people who do as well thank you so much jen thank you thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of living while feminist with me jen thorpe please do tune in next week to hear more from feminists about their lives and experiences take care of yourselves